From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Wyndham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. Daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving. Said God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Wyndham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at the age of 92. I'm Amy Antonucci, here to welcome you to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our listeners and audience, and to come and be a part of their local independent community radio station here in Seacoast, New Hampshire, for 11 years as of what, last week-ish? Tonight we have, yeah, woo, woo, thank you, woo! We have seven storytellers tonight on the theme of stepping up Seeking Justice. Our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast, and Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, what's your story? So here's how things will go tonight. As I said, we have seven storytellers, each with the true stories they're bringing us from their life. Pat Spaulding will introduce each of them to you before they speak. Everyone has up to 10 minutes for their telling. And we have no judgment system. There's no rating or voting. This is just plain storytelling. We have a small studio audience. We continue with station upgrades. So it's not a big audience, but they are enthusiastic. Right, folks? So, we're very excited for a great night, and I'm going to pass the mic on to our MC, Pat Spaulding, to introduce our first storyteller. Come on up, Pat. Hey, hey. Hi, everybody. 
Andy Davis is our first teller tonight. He lives with his wife and daughter at the foot of Mount Chikora in the White Mountains. His day job is co-director of the World Fellowship Center in Albany, New Hampshire, but his passionate avocation is storytelling. Andy has entertained audiences as far away as Paris and Bamako. Yes. <laughs> Can never pronounce that right. But he draws much of his material from right here in New Hampshire. Tonight's story is titled The Long View. Come on up, Andy. By the time I went to Guatemala at the age of 29, I was impatient to make a difference in the world, but I figured I pretty well had everything figured out and was a fully formed adult human. Ha! <laughs> I was working with an organization called Witness for Peace, helping to support the return of refugees who had been in Mexico for over a decade. It's an old story. I went there to help and ended up being the one who gained the most. The brief background is this. In the early 1980s, in order to eliminate what they saw as the social base for a flourishing guerrilla movement, the Guatemalan military took, undertook a coordinated campaign to wipe out 440 villages, mostly indigenous villages, off the map massacring tens of thousands of people and displacing at least a million. 200,000 fled over the border into Mexico. At the time I went there, the refugee leadership, none of whom had more than a sixth grade education, were negotiating directly with the Guatemalan government the right to an organized collective return. One of the concessions they demanded and won was the right to international accompaniment during and after the return to make it less likely that the military would come back into their villages. That was where people like me came in. Not only could they play a flawless political game and win concessions from a hostile government, when the first organized return happened in January of 1993, I got to see the full range of practical skills of these unlettered people. They started with the logistical challenge of getting 2,400 people from camps in three Mexican states onto 65 buses, and then once they arrived at their destination in weeks, they built the town out of the jungle practically from scratch. They cleared virgin forests with axes, built the houses in which they would live from materials at, immediately at hand, and set about becoming self-sufficient again, being able to grow their own food and their own livestock. This was a whole menu of basic life skills I myself was lacking. Fully formed adult, huh? <laughs> But the most important lesson I learned had to do with taking the long view in social justice struggles. These were people who had lived in a country at war since 1960 and seen unspeakable violence and countless setbacks and then lived in temporary shelters for years. They were people of the land who were always planting seeds and looking toward a future harvest. 
Now, upon their return, they were, there were still innumerable obstacles in their way before they would get to the society they were aiming for. And any individual human life is short. The long view was absolutely necessary. One of my best teachers was Marcos Ortiz. I met Marcos before the first return in Mexico. He was a catechist who worked with a radical Catholic organization we had partnered with. I was immediately drawn to him because at the workshop where we met, he was the one who kept everyone laughing, whether during work sessions or during the anarchic soccer games that broke out between work sessions. Marcos understood the importance of well-timed levity to the accomplishment of serious business. We had similar senses of humor that fed off each other. Most in that first return were to live permanently where they ended up, but some, like Marcos and his family, lived there temporarily until combat ended across the Shalbal River so that they could get back to their abandoned villages. In their case, Ixtahuacan Chiquito, tucked in a corner where the Ixcan River met the Mexican border. For Marcos, this little bit of land 15 miles to the west was the promised land. He told me, Andres, you'll have to see it. The corn grows tall and healthy, two crops a year, right up to the bank of the Rio Ixcan. Just after the return, I visited them in their temporary house built of sticks, and we watched together at dusk as black military helicopters flew low over the community. The promised land still felt very far away. When we heard rifle fire and explosions in the West, Marcos's wife, Juana, barely paused in dinner preparations. Corn tortillas were soon piled high in front of me along with a plate of beans, and later in the evening a bottle of moonshine made the rounds. They knew how to enjoy the present while keeping an eye fixed on the future, the long view. I loved to see how completely present Marcos was with children, his own and others. Once I commented on it, and he told me, we never know how much time we have, Andres. It's all about those who come after us. I was particularly touched by Marcos's relationship with his daughter, Francisca, who was a young teenager when I met her. Temperamentally, she struck me as being very like him, quick to tease and laugh and make others feel at ease and serious about serious things. When I returned to the States, I was only in sporadic contact over the years. As time passed, there were lots of political disappointments in Guatemala, so you had to be able to take the long view. Life intervened, and I didn't get back there until last January. The first community I visited, the first returnee community, was an hour's walk from Ixtoacan, Chiquito. On my first full day there, a friend asked me where I'd be going afterwards, and when I told him, he asked who I'd be visiting, and I told him, and he said, Fíjese, Andrés, Marcos Ortiz died a year ago, just before Christmas. 
he drowned in the Rio Ishkan. So my long-anticipated return to Ishtawakan Chiquito wasn't the joyful affair I'd hoped for. But I had a tearful reunion with Doña Juana, shrunken by grief and sickness, and Francisca, now in her mid-thirties, rounder and looking more like Marcos than ever, and the rest of the family. I got to meet a new passel of grandchildren who'd been born in the intervening years. Francisca's sister Maria fed me lunch, and then Maria, her husband Jose, Francisca, her husband Silverio, and five of the kids took me on an afternoon walk, um, beginning with a visit to the cemetery. On the way, Francisca told me the story. She'd traveled back for Christmas with two small children in tow, several hours from the regional capital in the mountains, where she was following in her father's footsteps, working as a catechist for the same organization. Her father had met her an hour south of their village, and they began to follow the river, and then a boat came along, and Marcos suggested they take it. So they did. It was overloaded, and when the bow of the boat dipped below the surface of the water, and the whole boat began to sink, Marcos grabbed Glendy, his granddaughter's wrist, as she didn't know how to swim. The river took them. Everybody got out, but Marcos and Glendy had taken in a lot of water. People worked on her and were able to bring her back, but Marcos was already gone. His last act in life was to save the life of his granddaughter, the long view. At the cemetery, they led me to the above-ground blue concrete tomb that said, Marcos Ortiz Jimenez, hero of Ixtahuacan Chiquito. A cross rose above it on which his white cowboy hat hung. Francisca lit a candle and said a prayer for her father, telling him that his friend Andres had come back to see him again but too late. As she prayed, I thought again how much she looked like her father, how she lit up in the same way in delight and was serious in the same way about serious things. Leaving the Campo Santo, we threaded our way through the shoulder-high blue-green corn stalks, through the abundant fields that reached all the way to the edge of the beautiful Rio Ishkan. And there on the edge of the river, I built sandcastles with Glendy and the other children. And as I lost myself in our ephemeral construction, I thought of Marcos's brief shining moment on this earth, preparing the promised land for those who will follow taking the long view. Gracias, Andre. Great story. Coming up next, Elizabeth Wolf lives in Rye, New Hampshire. She's a local activist for good social causes, and she plays a mean trombone with a leftist marching band. As a majorette in that band, it is my personal belief 
that LMB, if it could identify a band leader, would pick Elizabeth. <laughs> of course, LMB will never do that. Her story dates back to a high school experience and is titled Pass Slash Fail. Come on up, Liz. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. That will teach me to write my own bios. <laughs> Next time. <laughs> Every class has its unpopular kids. They're shy, quiet, and end up being the targets of ridicule from their classmates for no reason in particular. The peers who don't openly bully them mostly just ignore them. Arthur was an unpopular kid. I was known to my peers as a good student. I got good grades, was an active class participant, expressing strong opinions on academic questions, and had a particular skill for taking tests, able to come up with good answers under pressure. In the 10th grade, I had government and economics with Arthur. There were about 15 students in the class, and for most of the semester, we had a long-term substitute teacher. His name was Mr. Huggins. He used his stint as our instructor to give out random and disconnected assignments. One day, seemingly on a whim, he decided that the class should be having debates on controversial topics. So he chose the subject of nuclear power and selected two students to prepare either the pro or con side to present in class the next day. Selected for the con side of the argument was Anna. A universally well-liked girl, she was kind, smart, and a good student, while not being too good of a student. Arthur was assigned the pro position, given the job of defending nuclear power. And so the following day, extremely popular Anna and abysmally unpopular Arthur came in set to debate. Each of them gave a short presentation, outlining the main points of the issue. They both gave competent, informative talks, having clearly each spent several hours researching the topic. Being known as a good student, we all expected Anna to do well. Arthur was definitely not known as a good student. But then, what did the rest of us really know about him anyway? Of course, it didn't matter that Arthur's presentation was informative or clear. He was an unpopular kid who had to defend the unpopular side. His fellow classmates proceeded to tear him apart. Never mind that Arthur had actually researched the subjects, and the other kid's knowledge of nuclear power could only have come from comic books. Using, using his few hours of investigation, Arthur attempted to dispel the ludicrous criticisms of his peers. He even made a noble effort to describe various methods of safely storing nuclear waste. The students, for some reason, chose this portion particular to jump all over because 10th graders are obviously experts in nuclear material. <laughs> of course, whatever you think of nuclear power, there are actual scientific facts. But why worry about those when you can cling to popular misconceptions? To her credit, Anna actually tried to deflect some of the attacks, pointing out that Arthur had, in fact, just done what he was told for the assignment, but the torment continued unabated. And then it got worse. 
Apparently, for Mr. Huggins, the smell of blood in the water was just too tempting. Rather than putting an end to the browbeating of Arthur, Mr. Huggins simply joined in. He openly mocked a student, whose only offense was completing the teacher's own ridiculous assignment. He dismissed anything Arthur tried to state as fact, seemingly believing, as much of the kids did, that nuclear physics is just magical. But no, that wasn't it. The only reason was because it was Arthur. And Arthur was an unpopular kid. The hurt that Arthur felt was displayed all over his face. Maybe by sophomore year he was accustomed to his classmates' derision, but to be blatantly taunted by a teacher must feel so much worse. Arthur withstood the taunting throughout the rest of class, while I sat at my desk, enraged. What is wrong with all of you? I did not shout. I did not leap to Arthur's defense storm from the room, or even try to deflect the attacks with some sort of lighthearted humor. This test was a simple one. Do something. Instead, I stood in silence, furious that the people around me could be so unfair and so cruel. I have no idea what the aftermath of this incident was like for Arthur. I never asked him. Maybe he was able to brush it off as just one more injustice he had to endure to get through school. That's a sad thought in itself, but I actually prefer it to thinking that he was left scarred by that particular event. For me, I was left to consider nothing less than what kind of a person I was. Was I really willing to sit by and watch someone be tormented, especially when responding to it? would be so simple. Did I actually lack the courage to stand up to my peers? Was I intimidated merely by the authority of a teacher? I certainly didn't want to think so, but the facts seemed to speak for themselves. Sure, it all made me really angry, but moral outrage by itself is meaningless. There is no partial credit for getting real mad. Perhaps it was a minor incident, but it changed how I saw myself. Doing the right thing is not an academic question. Opposing an unjust authority was not theoretical. And defending the innocent, definitely not trivial. Sitting by silently was a failure. So after initially mulling over what a horrible person I must be, I resolved to do better. Simply put, The incident with Arthur and Mr. Huggins is what turned me into an activist. Now, to the best of my abilities, I endeavor not to sit by in the face of injustice, but to respond, to call authority into question, to be willing to stand against a vocal majority, and to always defend the dignity of other people. Thank you. We weren't ready for the story to end. Yeah. Oh, I think we went right to that classroom with you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Yes. And that's why she plays her trombone. The leftist marching band. Coming up, Craig Worth. <laughs> 
lives in Newmarket, New Hampshire, with his wife, Liz. He is a singer-songwriter who gave up the security of a teaching job several years ago. (laughs) (laughs) What was he thinking? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Ah, security. What's it worth? To become a touring musician. Mm Mm-hmm. Craig performs internationally. That's pretty cool, Craig. Singing. Yes, it does. It is impressive. Singing original songs, telling his own stories, and leading a life of adventure. Tonight's story is about the tiny acts that can make the world a better place. It's titled Spark of Kindness. Craig. Thank you, Pat. I want the life my bio has. That's what I want. That, that's, that's, uh, that sounds great. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, I am. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, justice and stepping up, but I'm going to talk about tiny steps. I'm a tiny stepper. My son Benjamin is uh, takes big steps. He's the one who would have. Um, I would have been with you with Arthur in the classroom, Elizabeth. Um, I would have seen everything you saw, and I would have said nothing in that classroom. Uh, my son Ben would have would have stood up and spoken and that's that's one of the things i guess maybe that's an achievement in my life is to have have, uh, helped shape that someone who's who steps beyond me in that regard but um i approach my activism unlike ben's who ben will wear t-shirts and he'll make his own hat with the message that he wants to put forth and he will get occasional thumbs ups and he will get uh He'll get anger in response to some of his messages. I am a diplomat. I am gentle and calm. In some, I am a coward. <laughs> I am very, um, very subtle in my messages. Not because I think it's the best way to be, really, always, but it's because what I, it's what I can do um, with who I am. And I try to make the best of it now. I try to accept it, that I have a small, quiet, whispery voice Uh, as an activist. And one of the things I realized that I can do is to do tiny things. And I come to think of them as sparks of kindness. It started for me in, and I didn't remember this till I heard Elizabeth's story, but it was in, um, I think it's third grade, where one of my classmates, let's call her Sarah, um, came in every day wearing the same dress and often an unwashed dress. And she sat alone. And inevitably in February, Valentine's Day came and the teacher invited everyone to bring their Valentines in the next day to put in the box to be handed out in school. And I, knowing or believing that Sarah was not going to get one, made one out for her. And I put it in the box And I watched her get the only Valentine for her out of that box and open it up. And I saw her get this smile on her face. And then the teacher came over and said, who gave you that, Sarah? And she said, Craig did. (laughs) And the class said, Craig loves Sarah. Craig loves Sarah for the whole year. And I wished that I hadn't made that card for her because I didn't want that kind of attention um, and I'm sorry that I wish I had that regret but that's the way I that's the way I felt I didn't want to be outed not because I was humble about it or I wanted to, it was the the right way to be but because 
I wanted to do that secretly and not be not be known for that particular act. But I always saw that um, that that pain and exclusion as a little boy, and and was felt powerless to do anything about it, or chose not to. What I have looked for is opportunities to do little things, really tiny things, things that don't cost me anything. And I have a couple examples of stories of what those sparks of kindness are. One was on a late night stop coming back from a performance of mine. I stopped in a, in a chain of sandwich shop and it was like three minutes before closing. I barely got in the door. The chairs were up on the tables. There was a young man sweeping up the floor, his back to me. I went to the counter, I said, got time for one more, and they, they did let me in just a little bit reluctantly, not unkindly, but they were really ready to get home. And they made me my six inch sandwich um, to my usual specifications, and I got my fountain soda, and I headed for the door. And just as I reached the door handle, the young man who was sweeping up uh, turned to me and said, you have a good night, sir. And I was shocked by it, quite honestly. We, I hadn't made eye contact with him. He wasn't in my path. Um, and I kind of didn't say much about it. I just kind of said, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, and I went out to my car. And I put my sandwich on the seat, and I put my drink in the cup holder, and I put my key in the ignition, and I started my engine. And then I turned my key off and took my keys out of the ignition and I opened my door and I walked back into the sandwich shop and I said, excuse me, sir, to the young man who was still sweeping. And I said, thank you for what you said to me. That's an excellent example of customer service. <laughs> and, I, and I've hardly seen such a thing these days. And it just lifted my spirits tremendously. And now it was his turn to be, ah, his, his, his mouth was open. He, he was smiling somehow with his, with his open mouth. And he, all he could think to say was, thank you, you have a good night, sir. <laughs> um, but I could see by his body language that, that my, uh, my spark hit the mark. And... I must say that the rule for me for that is that for me to do these things, if I tell about them, then I, then they don't they don't they don't count for my tally. So so I know everyone I'm including today tonight I have to re remove from my tally. So that's how that's how generous I am to you in, in my storytelling. Two down here, one one to go. This actually this last one is one that was a spark that was uh, directed my way in a very surprising manner. Again, I was on tour and I was hitting a, um, one of the, on these long highway stretches. You look for the every 23 miles or so, you have a, a rest stop and the cars are directed one way and the trucks another way and they all look pretty much the same. And I followed the car side to the left and I parked. And I was getting out of my car, heading toward the big glass door, which I'm always careful to touch with my shirt sleeve. Um, because of the thousands of people passing through and my fear on the road of getting deathly ill when I have like 12 shows to do somewhere. So, um, but as I was walking up to the door, there was a group of young men in front of me. And 
by their look and behave they're kind of joking around and slapping each other and laughing and if there's an energy about it that I that set off alarms in me that made me feel different from them or that they were different from me that they might be troublemakers or gangsters or whatever whatever <laughs> I whatever I was doing even subconsciously labeling them as people to stay away from and that maybe I wish weren't in front of me going to the same place I was going I'm not proud to say that that those are not things that I often allow into my head consciously but they're clearly reflexes that I that I have um, and as I'm kind of walking slower and slower not to get up to them because they're taking their sweet time getting into that place and I want to get to my slice of pizza and my beverage and get back on the road um, finally they start filtering in the doorway you know laughing and, and joking and meandering as they go and the very last one stops in the doorway and I'm going, oh, come on, man, just go through and get with your buddies and let's get on with it. And he holds the door open for me. And he says, there you go, sir. <laughs> and I walked in. And I thank him for the chance to tell that tonight. That was his spark of kindness to me. And it's um, when these sparks are working right, they 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 burn and and glow and do bigger things down the road maybe that that same day or maybe a year in this case two years later i have a song after that uh, the subway episode i wrote this called spark of kindness it's a shorty There's a star above our brother He would see if he looked up someday There's a message for another Could tear some troubles down A little light upon the water Would help a lonely sailor find her way There's a son and here's a daughter Could use a steady hand What does it take? To make an offering Why wait until tomorrow A spark of kindness Such a tiny thing Can shake and break a sorrow see 659 let's call it you're listening to WSCA LP 106.1 FM Portsmouth Community Radio broadcasting from Portsmouth New Hampshire this is True Tales Radio I'm your announcer Amy Antonucci and here to introduce our next storytellers we have MC Pat Spaulding come on Pat I just love how the lineup of stories is 
going tonight. It's almost as if we'd read them beforehand and, <laughs> and set it up that way. Next coming, we have Will Hopkins. He is a lifelong resident of New Hampshire who served in the New Hampshire National Guard and also served in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. He was decorated for valor during a year-long tour in Iraq as an infantryman, including the fall 2004 Fallujah Offensive. Sorry, my pronunciation is the greatest. Upon completion of his six-year term, Hopkins was honorably discharged from the National Guard. He has since served as a member of the Board of Directors of Veterans for Peace, and in 2009 took over as Executive Director of New Hampshire Peace Action Education Fund. Will is also a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War, and he attends Quaker Meeting. His story tonight is titled, Peacemaking as Amends for War. <laughs> so uh, justice, uh, justice can be a, a scary word for me. Because uh, it Im implies that when you've done something wrong, you need to do something equal to make up for it. And uh, I've done things that are bigger than a single person can make up for. Um, when, uh, when you read about or, or listen to experts who write about uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, as you tend to do when at the age of 24, 25, you're unable to sleep, drinking and smoking a lot of weed, and you're uh, having, uh, having trouble sleeping in general, can't go grocery shopping. You find that the experts see it more as a uh, spiritual wound. Um, uh, the studies show that, that people who... Um, uh, are actually defending their homes when, when an area is attacked, have PTSD at a much lower rate than people who are attacking somewhere else. I, um, I had a, a pretty active year in Iraq. Um, I came home and I was a, I was a mess. Um, you know, I, I grew up Unitarian Universalist, which might, means uh, knowing that uh, you know, at the core of my spiritual beliefs, there's this idea that uh, every person is worthy of the same inherent respect and dignity. Um, and, and that holding that core and then going to a place where you're using racial slurs and you're seeing children without food or medical care or water uh, whose parents have been killed, uh, starving, um, seeing people limbless, homeless, uh, and vacant, uh, you have to work really hard to try to um, try to keep your uh, your wits about you. And, and for for that year, I had to convince myself that it was that there was something good or noble or true or right about what I was doing in Iraq. Um, and, and that was knowing, as I knew when I got shipped to Iraq, that I didn't believe there were weapons of mass destruction. I didn't believe that. Uh, that this was something that was being done for the good of the Iraqi people. I didn't believe that it was for the safety of my country. I knew that it was for oil. But I I, I had to go, otherwise I'd go to jail. So I, I, I went and I came home and I was a mess. And um, and that, that word justice that, that's so scary to me uh, in my darker hours. Um, I, how do I, how do I make up for that? And, um, 
and I don't know that I'll ever feel totally like I like I have or like I can. Um, but I when I did come home, uh, I I got involved with the peace movement pretty quickly, and um, it wasn't until after I took the uniform off. I, uh, I I think like like Craig, there's a there's a big part of me. Uh, you know, people call me a, a you know a war hero or whatever, and, and I think deep down I have that same sense of cowardice. Um, you know, and I wouldn't have said a word while I had that uniform on, and there was risk. But once I took it off, I started speaking out, and um, and I think that uh, you know what I've found working for peace uh, in a professional role, in a volunteer role uh, as a board member of Veterans for Peace is that. I don't know that I'm ever going to feel like there's a way to move towards justice. Um, you know, like when, when you're talking about human life, uh, there's no action that makes up for that, but I know that justice is at the core of it. I want to see justice. I want to see, see, uh, something done for the people of Iraq to make it up to them. Someday I want to go and tell them I'm sorry sorry is cheap um but I, I i see when i when i um you know when i when i go into a congressperson's office and uh they uh first thank me for my service which always makes me cringe thanking me for my service i served exxon i served uh bp i served halliburton i I didn't do anything that made anybody here safer. I didn't do anything to defend our constitution or your freedoms. Um, and I always cringe when people thank me for that. Um, there's no good way to respond to it when they, when they do. And I know they mean well when they thank me, but, um, but when the, the Congress people thank me, they can't disregard me as a hippie. They can't, <laughs> you know, they, they they can't ignore what I have to say, um, you know, when uh, they have to sit there and they have to listen to it um, and they have to actually take it in and consider it. And sometimes that means that I have a little more leverage. I remember one of those moments where I seemed totally irredeemable to myself was right after my first meeting with Charlie Bass, our uh, the the other congressional district Republican who was in office when I first took over at New Hampshire Peace Action. And I read other directors' reports of what their meetings had been like and being completely disregarded. And so I went in and he thanked me for my service and then he listened to what I had to say. And then he, he said, but, you know, my stance on the surges in Afghanistan isn't going to change because I don't want to break from my party here. I said, so you're willing to accept that these surges are going to be counterproductive, that Americans will die, that Afghans will die, that the situation will be worse, and that it will cost us billions, but you won't stand up to your party for it. I left and I felt so worthless, like, wow, what, what are we fighting for if, if they're not going to, they don't have the courage. But then a few days later, Charlie Bass wrote a letter, and I don't remember the exact words of his opening sentence, but it was something along the lines of, I've been around the state talking to veterans of these wars, and I've decided I can't stand and support this conflict in Afghanistan anymore. And he voted against funding those surges and uh, then lost immediately thereafter. Um, <laughs> but I realized that, that um, 
you know, like, I may never forgive myself and I may never be able to go back to Iraq and get forgiveness from the families of the, that were hurt by what I did. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I can't do things that are big. I can't use that as leverage. And so it's uh, how I seek justice. Thank you, Will. <laughs> the microphone is way high for me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's good. Oh, that was um, a powerful story, Will. Thank you. Amy Antonucci is a longtime volunteer for WSCA, co-producing the show Making Waves, Independent Voices for Peace and Justice, and she is the announcer for True Tales Radio. She was an organizer for Seacoast Peace Response for 10 years. Her activist work these days is more focused on environmental issues. But Amy agrees with the writer Alice Walker's quote that activism is my rent for living on this planet. Her story tonight is titled The Newington Five. Thank you, Pat. Uh-oh, I have to adjust the mic for myself. Am I okay, John? Yes, go Too many hats tonight. All right. It was September of 2002 when I called a friend and said to her, I think I just agreed to be part of a civil disobedience action against the war that will probably get me arrested. <laughs> hmm, she answered, are you sure you're the best choice for that? <laughs> a year before that conversation, I was horrified along with everyone else by the attacks of September 11th. But I didn't share what seemed like everyone else's wish for retaliation. I heard about the start, start of the U.S. bombing of Afghanistan on the radio while driving by myself. It was reported that thousands of refugees were fleeing Kabul, facing freezing temperatures and starvation, but what other choice did they have? I had to pull over. I couldn't see. I was crying so hard. I was alone in the car, and I felt alone in the country with so many American flags flying. By the time I got back on the road, I felt a new resolve to act. So I stepped up. I protested and vigiled. I wrote letters. I organized speakers. None of it felt easy. I mean, I was definitely raised to be a good girl, to be a nice girl. I was never sent to the principal's office. I never got a detention. I thought my, I was quiet and shy. I was scared to raise my hand in classes. Even though in 2001 I was nearing 30, I still felt like that same girl. But now I was out there at the vigils being yelled at and spit at and sometimes threatened. I wrote letters to the editor that received furious responses. I got up at events that needed to be emceed and I spoke in front of people. <laughs> I talked to reporters and I led chants at protests. It had been a year of taking risks and pushing myself. I rose to many occasions because someone needed to. But civil disobedience 
getting arrested, possible jail time, court proceedings, seemed so terrified that I had never seriously considered it. From September 10th to September 11th, 2002, I attended a 24-hour vigil in Portsmouth Market Square. We held a banner that said, No More Victims and Peace in Five Languages. While there, we were joined by a woman in a hijab, uh, a headscarf, which is not so common in New Hampshire. She was surprised to find us, too. Yasmin thanked us for being there. She asked if she could borrow a peace sign and join us until she had to go pick her kids up from school. She told us she had grown up in Baghdad, Iraq, that most of her family was still there, and that they were scared about what might happen. She said she was happy and encouraged to have found us peace people out here. That alone made my exhaustion the next day feel worth it. The following day, September 12th, 2002, President Bush asked the UN to take action against Iraq. He then asked Congress to authorize the use of force. There was escalating talk. You might remember some of this. Iraq had WMDs, weapons of mass destruction. Iraq harbored and supported terrorists. Condoleezza Rice told us that we could not wait for the smoking gun that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. That was when a fellow activist called me, worried. He thought it was time to take our protest to another level. I agreed. I said I was in. It wasn't until after the call that I fully realized what I had just agreed to. I felt kind of shocked at myself and divided. I did want and need to do what I felt was right, but I was scared and I wanted to stay safe. Well, we peace people held meetings and started planning an action, just what to do and who would do what. Four of us emerged as willing to risk arrest, three men and me. My fear rose closer to panic at this, since I knew we'd be separated by gender if we went to jail, leaving me alone while they might be kept together. At every meeting, I asked the other women, is anyone willing to join me? I asked Susie and Linda, Macy and Phyllis, I almost asked a woman totally new to our group. But for various reasons, it wasn't right for any of them to take the risk at that time. October 8th arrived, the day that Senator Gregg was to vote on the Iraq War Resolution. At other offices around the country, civil disobedience was being carried out as well. We brought documents questioning Iraq's threat to the US and a list of questions for the senator about his position. We asked that it all be faxed to him in DC, then spent the afternoon in his waiting room, talking with the staff, reporters, each other. At some point, a response came back, a fax letter, looked like a form letter, in which he asserted that Iraq did possess weapons of mass destruction, biological, chemical, and nuclear, and posed a significant threat. I still have the letter. Then. He voted for the war resolution. I was filled with dread at this point. Felt a little bit outside of myself. I knew that I was going to go through with it, and my conviction that the war would be wrong was stronger than my fear, but only by a little bit. 5 p.m. came and the warnings to leave started. The police were called. 
our supporters started going outside the office, thanking us for staying. Yasmin was there. She hugged me before leaving. I reminded myself that my fear was nothing compared to what her family felt. Then it was down to just the four of us, plus Macy Morse, a longtime Seacoast activist. She was something of a hero of mine and a legend in certain circles. Macy is maybe five feet tall. She was 82 at the time. And when they went to escort her out, she smiled big and said, no, I don't think so. I was incredulous, then bathed in relief. I thought, I'm going to jail with Macy Morse. <laughs> I felt utterly free already, having a little internal celebration. And so we became the Newington Five, and I blame Macy Morse for the inappropriate large smile given the situation that I displayed in many of my arrest photos. <laughs> the town of Newington was not too worked up about us. The officer driving Macy and I to the police station started trying to talk with us about a sports game, which is not something I know about any day, let alone that day. They fingerprinted us, we signed forms, and we were released without even one night in jail after all. But the war resolution did pass that October. In November, we were arraigned and a trial date was set. Meanwhile, we kept protesting. I threw myself into it, nothing was as important to me. There were many events, a solid group of people coming together to work on stopping a war on Iraq. I got to know Yasmin more and I emailed with her family they wanted me to come meet them, to thank me personally, and be their guest in Iraq when things were better. I wanted that so badly for all of us. On March 19, 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq. I wore only black for six months after that and changed my focus from preventing, preventing the war to ending it. The Newington Five were tried and found guilty of criminal trespass in April 2003 and given the biggest fine we could be given. The judge was harsh and shaming and dismissive of what we were trying to do. But I felt no shame about the action. My regrets were just that it was small compared to what was needed and we had not stopped the war. My friend was probably right. I wasn't really the best choice for the action. <laughs> but if not me, who? So I did it anyway. I learned about myself and I found that I wasn't alone. And I got bigger and braver and stronger for it. There was another gift that was given to me for doing that action. Durham-born singer-songwriter Pierce Woodward wrote a song about it, and John Levering is going to play that for us now. John, you ready?
with her husband Ted, her father Ed, and their dog named, darn it's not Fred, uh, name is Leo. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> I wrote that intro too. <laughs> Pat returned to uh, live in a house where she grew up to care for her father a while back. Tonight, she will tell us about an experience that she had back in 202, 2002, which is a good follow-up to Amy's story that we just heard. Pat's story actually has two titles, FBI Infiltrators, or My Introduction to Anti-War Activism. Come on up, Pat. It's a very good follow-up to Amy, for sure, because it directly relates to it. <clears throat> I met Wes in 1992 at a Microsoft DOS class. Remember DOS? <laughs> My boss sent me in an effort at computer literacy in our aging office. Wes, a Vietnam veteran and architect, was sitting next to me, and by the time the course was over, we had become friends. We started meeting most Fridays after work for coffee. 
Wes is also an avid reader of newspapers and was always finding interesting things to do and inviting me and my family along. I tend to be a homebody, so his invitations provided enriching experiences we would not otherwise have had. And I'd like to share one of those experiences. (laughs) In 2002, 10 years after I met Wes, and one year post 9-11, Bush was gearing up for war in Iraq. West was reading the New Hampshire Gazette, a local progressive newspaper, and noticed a listing for a peace vigil to be held in Market Square. It was sponsored by an organization called Seacoast Peace Response and referenced a meeting following the vigil. He invited my family and me to join him and experience a peace vigil and suggested that we also go to the meeting after the vigil to get more information. We had never been to anything like this before, and it sounded like fun, if not a little scary. My 23-year-old daughter Emily and I, both progressively minded, go Bernie, (laughs) thought it would be fun and interesting. My conservatively minded husband Ted, on the other hand, agreed to go only because, well, he loves me. (laughs) When we met up with Wes in front of North Church in Market Square, the vigil was something of a party atmosphere. Fun, exciting, and, yes, a little scary. I'd never stood on a sidewalk holding a sign that put my beliefs on public display. But there we were, standing behind signs provided by members of SECO's Peace Response. I was excited by the atmosphere of camaraderie amongst the people and with the feeling of empowerment it gave me. That first vigil left me in admiration of those people who show up every week and stand outside in all kinds of weather, holding a sign, trying to shine a light on issues that really need looking at. It takes courage to do that. So at the end of that vigil, I was feeling pretty enthusiastic about going to the meeting of Seacoast Peace Response to find out more about them. This was where things got a little tricky, however. Unbeknownst to us, the post-vigil meeting was a civil disobedience strategy meeting where they would discuss a sit-in to take place in Senator Judd Gregg's office and a roll call of those who'd be willing to stay past five and be arrested. Back in those days, actually it started in the 60s, the FBI had a program called COINTELPRO, which stands for Counterintelligence Program. One of the purposes of COINTELPRO was to, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, neutralize, or otherwise eliminate, close quote, the activities of targeted groups and individuals that the FBI deemed subversive, including anti-war organizers. One of their methods was to infiltrate a group, find out what they were up to, and then join a direct action and behave in ways that would put a negative light on the group. The members of Seacoast Peace Response didn't realize that their post-vigil meeting had been advertised in the Gazette, so they were shocked at our arrival. (laughs) 
Although initially they'd been happy to see us show up at the vigil. (laughs) Yay, new people! (laughs) When we showed up at their meeting, they had no idea who these strangers were. It must have occurred to them that we could be FBI infiltrators, just playing dumb while taking names. We noted surprise and discomfort when we entered the room. But we were so completely naive. We had no idea Seacoast Peace Response members might be thinking of us in those terms. I don't remember everyone at the meeting that night, but I do remember that Amy was there, and David Diamond, and a young woman named Susie. I remember David because I had read some of his opinion pieces, letters to the editor, etc., and he had celebrity status with me. (laughs) I remember Susie because she said she couldn't commit to getting arrested. I forget why, maybe a job commitment. I remember Amy because she said she would commit to getting arrested. But she didn't want to be the only woman to do so, because men and women are separated when arrested and taken to different jails. Then someone said, we'll call Macy. She'll be willing to get arrested. Macy Morse, who was 82 years young at the time, had been an activist all her life and had been arrested many times before. There was a discussion of the media and press releases. Then toward the end of the meeting, someone asked us in what Wes remembers as a suspicious and not very kind tone, how we had heard about this meeting. Wes told them that he'd read about the vigil in the meeting in the New Hampshire Gazette. That prompted a discussion about whether or not Seacoast Peace Response should mention their meetings in the Gazette. (laughs) I realized at this point that perhaps we were not welcome here. (laughs) However, it was so thrilling to be there, hearing about a direct action, a sit-in that was going to take place, that I paid little attention to any unwelcoming vibes. They were hardly noticeable compared to my naive enthusiasm at being a part of all this. (laughs) Years later, Amy confided to me that Seacoast Peace Response members were, in fact, wondering if we were well-disguised FBI infiltrators. (laughs) My husband, Ted, remembers feeling like we'd crashed a private party that night. He'd felt very uncomfortable and afterwards said, don't ever ask me to do anything like this again. (laughs) (laughs) But Wes and I continued to go to vigils after that night. Our Friday night meetings for coffee became weekly attendance at the Seacoast Peace Response vigils in Market Square and Saturday Peace vigils in Dover. Activism is both encouraging and scary. It has brought me way outside of my comfort zone. Some passers-by honk their horns and wave in support of our message. That makes me feel great, knowing that there are people out there who agree with us and appreciate our efforts. Other people yell from their cars, get a life or get a job, as if we don't already have both. One guy in Dover used to point his finger like a gun and shoot at us as he drove by pretty unnerving. Some people think that holding a sign that says, bring the troops home, means that we don't support the troops. That makes them very angry, like we're terrorists trying to demoralize the troops, rather than peace activists desperately trying to stop an insane war and bring the troops home safely. 
and because we are desperately trying to stop an insane war, we show up every Friday night in Portsmouth and every Saturday in Dover so that the other people who show up won't have to do it alone. Sometimes I'd get there to find that Edith Pearson, who was in her 80s, had been standing there alone for 15 minutes already, holding her United Nations flag and her peace sign. 15 minutes feels like a really long time when you're alone. Seeing another person coming towards you with their sign is just the best feeling. It gives you the courage to continue. Edith was amazing. I don't think she ever lost her resolve. Wes and I became active members in Seacoast Peace Response. We've attended anti-war marches in Boston, New York City, and Washington, D.C., where we met many wonderful people. Thirteen years ago, Wes invited me to step outside of my comfort zone to attend a peace vigil that has led me on an amazing journey of activism. I'm grateful to him and to all the other activists for all they do to educate us and for their unrelenting commitment to peace and justice. They truly serve us all. Thank you, Pat. And now, last up, we have Steve Diamond. He's a lifetime resident of the Seacoast and an agitator for peace and justice. He is the systems administrator here at Portsmouth Community Radio and a homesteader in Barrington, New Hampshire with fellow New Hampshire Making Waves producer, Amy Antonucci, where both implement sustainable agricultural practices. When not rebuilding computers or cutting down trees, Steve plays chess, guitar, and he juggles. His story is titled, <laughs> Florida Was No Vacation. Come on up, Steve. <laughs> So before I get into the story I have ready here, I wanted to just share a little anecdote inspired by your stories and uh, about how, you know, basically the barriers to action, the, the self-consciousness, the shame that keeps us from doing what we believe is right. And the only thing I remember about junior high school is Mrs. Carr, C-A-R-R, and it had to be seventh or eighth grade. That's all there was at Dover. And... Uh, on St. Patrick's Day, she segregated the class very intentionally, gave special treatment to all the Irish, everyone who says they were Irish, and everyone who wasn't got different treatment. And she just let the chaos ensue. And because she just stood back and sat there as whatever happened, that's what inspired me to get up. I couldn't speak, but I went up to the board and I wrote, we're all a little bit Irish. And so that was one moment of stepping out of my comfort zone and actually <laughs> saying something. It didn't stick because there was a shocking moment that I was horrified by in high school that I won't get into that story right now, maybe another time. I did actually hear previously, so don't have to. <laughs> anyway, so what I came here to tell you about, uh, I'm going to modify the title a little bit. Florida was no vacation. It was a graduation, pardon the alliteration. <laughs> <clears throat> that will make sense in a moment. The way I ended up protesting the free trade area of the Americas on the streets of Miami in 2003 starts with my college career. As an anthropology major and maybe as the child of parents who tried to do good in the world through the Peace Corps <clears throat> and political activism that they did, 
I started to ask myself how my life might influence the course of humanity, at least a little, in a positive direction. Maybe that's another way of asking myself what the meaning of life is. That's what college students should ask themselves. I chose professors who asked challenging questions. I tried to understand my country's role in the world, in classes, at lectures, and through somewhat obsessively reading the news. Back then in the mid-1990s, free trade and the jumble of acronyms surrounding it, NAFTA, WTO, IMF, FTAA, etc., were hot topics and just starting to be questioned. Why free trade for corporations and not fair trade and justice for workers, farmers, and the environment? Who makes these decisions? What I learned moved me to action. It took me a while to find my place in the movement, a way I could feel really useful. I became an EMT and took street medic training to prepare to support such protests. When confronted with police, tear gas, pepper spray, and the injuries I saw inflicted on activists, I wanted to be at least sure I wouldn't be helpless to act. In 2001, the Quebec City trade negotiation protests faced riot cops and violence. I didn't feel ready to go, so joined most of the rest of UNH Student Environmental Action Coalition and the Peace and Justice League at a lower-key New York City, not New York City, New York State demonstration. But I faced my fear to attend other risky demonstrations in Philadelphia, New York, and Washington. When I learned the government was trying again to expand NAFTA with the Free Trade Air of the Americas in Miami, I wasn't looking forward to what was clearly going to be an ugly confrontation, but knew that Miami was where I had to be. In a way, Miami was my graduation day in a curriculum I wrote for myself in global citizenship. Many of the protests I had attended were frightening, even traumatic. <clears throat> but the reports on recent demonstrations made clear that I could be facing something like a war zone. However, despite being on my own, I loaded my car and made the leap. To me, that's kind of the ultimate test. If you are alone, will you actually act? And uh, it's a tough question to ask oneself. I had modest savings, a decent car, a bag of medical supplies, and some places to stay on the way. Through an internet ride board, I found two student activists at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania looking for a ride. We barely stopped. I taught them how to drive standard when I could no longer stay awake. <laughs> the night before the summit and protests, we slipped through a heavily chained gate at the local activist convergence space, some warehouse somebody rented. Activists of all stripes there were more nervous about what was coming than I'd ever seen before. Helicopters buzzed overhead. We exchanged information and made plans. As we neared downtown Miami on the morning of the main day of protests, we heard from other activists outside the tall metal fence protecting the summit that they were already being attacked by the police. Local cops, police bust in from thousands of miles, and even federal ATF agents were out in force. The tone was set a week prior when the Florida Supreme Court suspended guarantees for speedy trials. The three of us parked and headed under I-95 towards the action. But the underpass happened to be where vans of extra local police were waiting, and they took notice of us as we walked by. I guess we did look the part with our backpacks and scruffy just-drove-24-hours look. <laughs> so before even reaching the demonstrations, we were arrested. When they searched my belongings, they found my medical shears, for those of you who are here, <clears throat> for cutting bandages. They decided 
they could be used to get into private property like lockpicks. So I was charged with felony possession of burglary tools. Uh, It's imagining what might be in my head. (laughs) We waited cuffed in a hot bus with many badly injured activists being denied medical care. I managed to assess an activist who was graying out with a concussion and talked down someone else whose hands were cuffed so tight his pain was overwhelming and he was having an anxiety attack. Although I had few options and little power at the time, being able to assist in some way was a relief to me and hopefully for those I helped a little bit. Eventually we were processed, interrogated by federal ATF agents with countless far-ranging questions and locked in small cells in random groups. Every step of the process was demeaning and frightening. It was complicated by tight quarters, moldy blankets, rough handling, and a hunger strike for vegetarian food. But other moments were actually fun, like when I suggested we play Two Truths and a Lie, like I used to with the kids at summer camps, this time with radical activists from the Midwest caught squatting in a mansion. I had never heard such creative lies and astounding truths before. (laughs) Through the bars of our cell, I could see most of our legal team demonstrating in support of our release until they too were quickly dragged off to jail. But knowing that we weren't forgotten nor alone was reassuring. I learned that the young activist tirelessly working on my case happened to be from New Hampshire also. His work was so important and heroic to me. He ferried money day and night and did mountains of paperwork to get each of us bailed out. The days dragged by. The hunger strike succeeded. I found the one spot in the cell with fresh air where I could still breathe despite my mold allergies. Jail was a combination of terrifying and painfully boring. I had brief calls from family at home. Because none of us gave our names in solidarity with each other, for a while I was lost in the system, known only as one of many John Doe's with an eight-digit prisoner number, which you all had to memorize. Finally released, I still had to remain in Florida for another week, waiting for a court date to be set. Then, a bit shell-shocked and unsure if I had made a difference, I I headed home, as I had started out, alone. So that's a theme here. Anyway. (laughs) Over the next couple of years, I had to make that drive to Florida two more times. Um, Once for incredibly detailed questioning about everything I had ever done and everyone I had ever known. Good thing I don't remember everything. Looking for anything they could use against me to undermine our civil suit against the city of Miami for their treatment of people that week. It took all day, but at least this time I had a lawyer present. We eventually accepted a settlement, too small a price for the authorities to pay for their behavior, but better than nothing. And it helped to cover my living expenses as I continued to work uh, the work of political agitation. The experience certainly changed me. I saw for myself how unfair the justice system can be. I went from intellectually supporting social justice for the oppressed to understanding that I am one of them and any of us can be. Meanwhile, massive protests erupted at the next FDAA summits, empowering empowering countries and their leaders who felt pushed into the deal to speak up, and that eventually derailed the talks. The FDAA, due to be signed in 2005, still hasn't been. And I wouldn't have known about this if I hadn't been prompted to write this story. I always knew that changing the world isn't easy, but I could certainly change myself and break my silence at least. 
and when countless agitators from all over the world with similar goals but various tactics act together, there are victories. I've always found hope in the African proverb, when spiders unite, they can tie down a lion. I am proud to have played my part as a thread in that web. Okay, thank you so much to um, tonight's great lineup of storytellers. Maybe our um, seven, is this the most we've ever had in one night? We've had seven once. Okay, a great bunch of people stepped up to tell their stories of stepping up. It's very exciting. And to our studio audience, thank you. Shine, audience, shine. All right, True Tales Radio will be back on October 27th with the theme of The Unexplainable and the Unforeseen. We're also accepting sign-ups for programs beyond that. Find out our themes and all sorts of other information at facebook.com slash truetalesradio. Pat Spaulding and I continue to offer storytelling workshops on the first Tuesday of each month from 7.30 to 9 p.m. here at WSCA, 909 Islington Street, Suite 1, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. You can have a chance to share your story off-air, get some feedback, try it out without notes, all that kind of good stuff, without the pressure of the radio listeners. These are free and open to the public. The next one is October 6th. And a very special event on Sunday, October 18th, 2 p.m., eight True Tales radio storytellers will share their stories on stage at the West End Theater, 959 Islington Street, here in Portsmouth. Um, to find out more and get tickets, you can go to act1nh.org, that is A-C-T-O-N-E-N-H.org. You can also call 603 300 2986. All the the proceeds from those will go to WSCA. And you are encouraged to call ahead because they expect it to sell out before that night. So, Many thanks to our underwriters for tonight's program. Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast. And Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, What's your story? If you also believe in community radio, contact us to become an underwriter. Email underwrite at wscafm.org. More thanks go to our MC Pat Spaulding, our set manager and photographer, Gene Gagney, our promotional assistant and photographer, Steve Koval. And, of course, producer John Lovering and his assistant, John Nash. Portsmouth Community Radio is a 501c3 volunteer-run nonprofit organization that depends solely on the financial support of members and underwriters. Find membership info at PortsmouthCommunityRadio.org. Help keep our diverse programming alive and well here on your independent community radio station. And help us finish the big improvements we're making to our signal, our website, and our studio, all to better serve our community. We really need you. PortsmouthCommunityRadio.org. 
Until our next True Tales radio show, I'm Amy Antonucci, and on behalf of all of us here, thanks for listening. I now turn the mic back over to John Lovering for the final few minutes of audio theater. Thank you, Amy, and thank you to our storytellers this evening. We're going to be back with you in just a couple of moments uh, while we uh, tidy up a few things here, and we'll be back to uh, summarize the night and tell you a little bit about next week on uh, audio theater. And don't forget, coming up at uh, 8 p.m. is Nocturnal Radio with Jay, which is a great new show here from 8 to 10. He will be starting right around 8 p.m. Hopefully we're not going to be late. We'll be right on time. So we'll be back in just a moment. thought of you and I forget to do